Welcome, and thanks for joining me, Keen Barclay, on Down the Tunnel. In sports broadcasting, much like coaching, there's a lot of hustle, a lot of preparation and planning that goes into every game. Knowing your team, knowing the opponent, as well as many other stories surrounding the team. And like most journeys we've had, there's a lot of work and perseverance that's required in gaining experience and opportunities to get where you want to be. And just like playing, there are special moments or calls that you're honored to have had the opportunity to experience. We get to hear some of today's guests' special moments. Today, we're going down the tunnel with soccer broadcaster John Freeman. John Freeman, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good to talk to another Tennessean involved in soccer. Tennessean, sort of, right? It takes some time until I can claim that I'm a Tennessean, I think. (laughs) Well, we talked earlier before you started recording about your your entire soccer background, and you sound quite well-traveled. I'm really curious what soccer in the Ozarks was like. Yeah, it sounds like a Netflix show, for sure. Um, well, let's talk about, I'm excited to have a, a broadcaster on. So let's talk about, you know, specifically for soccer, like when you first kind of got introduced to the game and, and kind of where, where it went from there. Sure. So my background is, uh, I grew up in a small town in Virginia, which was about a 30 minute drive away from the university of Virginia. Uh, and when I grew up in the, the early nineties, uh, the university of Virginia was really the epicenter of soccer in America. Uh, so the coach was Bruce Arena. Claudio Reyna uh, was the best player on the team. Ben Olsen came later. Uh, Jeff Agus were on some teams. And Tony Miola, the goalkeeper for uh, the 1994 World Cup team. Just all these names in American world soccer were playing at Virginia. And here I was, like a little boy, going to these games for maybe, what, $3? <laughs> And getting to watch athletes that would later go on to play, you know, in a World Cup final eight. Uh, Claudia Arena played at Manchester City. Uh, Kyle Martino was on that, uh, some of those teams. And he goes to broadcast the Premier League. So uh, I, I just had access to such world-class soccer at such a young age. Um, even going to soccer camps at Virginia, you would get these players that I just listed. They would be like your camp counselors. Um, and a funny thing is, uh, my, my, I think seventh grade, eighth grade travel soccer coach, uh, everyone knows who this guy is, but no one knows his name. His name's Pierre Baru. Uh, and he was my travel soccer coach. If you go back to that Landon Donovan world cup goal against Algeria, everyone knows the last second one that advanced the team to the knockout stages of the world cup. So they pile on Landon Donovan in that celebration and everyone knows that guy that's standing next to the pile with the double fist pump clinching and like rolling his head back in excitement. That was my eighth grade soccer coach, Pierre Baru, who became the strength and conditioning coordinator for the U S men's national team. Um, so Charlottesville really, there was just all these people going in and out because it was that epicenter. Um, and I had access to them as coaches. I had access to them as college counselors. I had access to them, uh, as just a general spectator, 
Um, and that piqued my interest in soccer and, and I hope refined uh, my ability to, to, to watch the game and, and commentate on the game. Um, and then it's all escalated from there. I, I piled my, my soccer experience and, and love for the game into uh, a career that I wanted to build in broadcasting. And, and so far, it's been a pretty good match. So was there anybody, you know, you're spot on with like you guys were just smashing home runs out with, with soccer legends in that area. Was there anyone in particular that you connected with that maybe influenced you um, like individually, like really impacted you? That's a good question. Um, you're, you're, you're young enough where you don't really know where they went after college for a long time just because there wasn't internet right. <laughs> you know, back then, which makes me sound really old. Uh, I just remember Claudio Reyna being really good. Um, and he was one of the first players that I ever saw. You know, if I went to a game and I was four years old, like Claudio Reyna was on that team um, to the point where I still have a poster of Claudio Reyna. Uh, I know we're not recording on video, but if you could see behind me, there's a poster of Claudio Reyna. And um, he was really the the king of soccer when it came to the players. But then also uh, Bruce Arena, uh, the the coach at Virginia, I would say it had a lot of influence in, in just me keeping up with the game because it was more accessible. So he went from Virginia to DC United and DC United was two hours away and on my local TV all the time. So uh, he was the one that made that transition from Virginia to major league soccer when major league soccer started. Um, and that's what began my interest in MLS. And ironically, you know, I grew up going to games that Bruce arena was coaching in the last game I just broadcasted on Saturday afternoon, Bruce Arena was coaching in uh, for, for the New England Revolution. So I guess it came full, full circle. And so then you got to watch players like, well, one of my favorites, Marco Echeverri. And- oh, yes. Yeah. Man, those DC teams, I look back and I'm like, how would they do today? Because the answer to a lot of MLS questions of would that team compete with today's Usually the answer is a resounding no. There were some really good players on that that first wave of DC United teams. You know, with John Harks and Eddie Pope, guys that played in the World Cup. Marco Echeverri, man, Jaime Moreno, Raul Diaz Arce. Like these are names I could still rattle off, uh, and and it's kind of cool to think about because here I am, 26 years after that first team, being able to name those names, uh, and I think as a, a Tennessean now that there are probably right. some five or six year olds that are watching Nashville SC games that in 25 years are going to be able to do the exact same thing about this Nashville SC team. And how cool is that? Yeah. Right. That's the, as cool the, as it gets. The connection's so fun. And it was players, players like Jaime Moreno and Mark Wetchberry that really put Bolivia on the map. You know, nobody had really like heard of them on the, on the national team stage, but then, you know, they, when they qualified for um, the World Cup, when it was here in USA, they, it was Bolivia, Germany in the opening game. Hmm. Man, you, so, you like an encyclopedia. It's well, funny, too, is, is that team, that D.C. United team, unearthed a lot of South American talent um, and yeah. Central American. And now there's almost been like a revolution of that South American talent in Major League Soccer again. In the last five years, that's been the major trend is that you dip into the Argentinian League. Nashville just got a player from, from Uruguay. Uh, you know, the Brazilian leagues, all the Central American leagues, these are now main feeders for Major League Soccer. It's not just Brazil anymore. And I think that's been, you know, that's that's kind of the thing is like 
there are other countries where we can we can find these players that can really transform a team and make you a profit too. Yeah, exactly. if, you, if you find the right one uh, and they increase in value, like Miguel Amiron, he was from Paraguay, uh, off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, Atlanta United finds him and sells him for a pretty penny to the Premier League. So uh, there's a lot of models uh, of how to build the the league and clubs, and everybody's got different ideas. And I think that's what makes the league so compelling too. Is there's not one one specific way. Well, and and I'm looking forward as the the new trend with like a lot of emphasis in the development academies. I for one am excited to see the players come up in the club, in the system, since they're 12 years old as a West Ham fan, like there's, there's nothing more that I love watching like Mark Noble play or, you know, James Tompkins when they broke into the first team. And I think that will transform some things for the MLS clubs too. And it's like, Hey, these are like your guys that have been with you now for 10 years and you know them. And now they're breaking into the first team. Yeah. And it's increasing more and more. Uh, you see it, across almost every team in the league and the academies are, are a major part in, in how these clubs develop. I'm even watching a, a game to my left where there's a lot of young teenage talent out there and um, sporting Kansas city's playing. And you know, one of their players is a, or at least last year was a player named Felipe Hernandez. And he was a Nashville kid. <laughs> he, he grew up in Tennessee and didn't have a professional club uh, when he was young. And to think that, you know, a player like him had to go all the way to sporting Kansas city um, to find a, a way onto the professional circuit. Uh, and now that there's you know, clubs in Nashville building, there's St. Louis um, Charlotte's coming into the league that uh, we're only going to be unearthing and training more and more quality talent in this country. And how exciting is that? Um, especially with the way that our national team is trending. Yeah. And then to have a, a GM like Mike Jacobs, who has experience with that kind of success in, in grooming players within the academies. I know Sporting KC, like if you look at like Busio and like how good he is and how he kind of came through the Sporting Kansas City Academy. And and I think, you know, Jacobs is going to bring a lot of that to Nashville and, and Jamie Smith as the academy director. Like it's going to be really exciting to see what they can do with producing some some kind of homegrown players into the first team. Oh, it's super, super cool. I mean, to, to think about what that moment will be like, and it's going to happen. It'll happen one sometime soon, hopefully. To be in a new state, I mean, think about how unbelievable this is um, as a, a Tennessean. Five years ago, there wasn't a professional soccer team in Tennessee um, at, at the USL level or the MLS level. Nashville C comes around at USL, then it moves to MLS. Now it's building a stadium that's going to be complete next year. And it is going to be an absolute palace in Nashville. And it's got an academy. And the idea that sometime relatively soon, there's going to be a Tennessean that scores a goal in this Tennessee soccer-specific stadium in Nashville. And what a moment that will be. It's, it's hard to believe how fast things have escalated. And that, that's even a possibility coming up soon. And maybe it'll be a, a goal you'll be calling, too. Huh, that would be a dream. Yeah, hopefully I'll be able to keep my voice for that. I've been losing it quite frequently. <laughs> the Nashville SC games are, are much more back and forth this year and more high scoring. Well, let's talk about how how that came about, where you kind of came through the, the sports broadcasting ranks to, to get to where you are now with Nashville. Yeah, it's a, it's a long journey, man. Um, I, I think back to kind of the beginning and broadcasting and everybody's got this like humble beginning. You just need somebody to say like, yes, um, 
my first broadcasting gig was answering phones at a local radio station in Charlottesville, Virginia as a high school intern. And I would like drive at five in the morning before going to high school just to answer phones for their morning show uh, because the local play-by-play guy did sports reports for it and he got me in. Uh, and how far I've come since then uh, that that somehow led to being able to call games in you know, a packed Nissan stadium with 59,000 fans for a game that's on national TV. So it's a, it's a long road, just like any player would say uh, you, you start, start humbly and, and work your way up. And, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of people that gave me, gave me a lot of opportunities and I've hopped my way around from Virginia to Tennessee. And um, I think back to, to all the people that had to say yes to get me to this point where I can call games and, uh, the SEC, the ACC, Major League Soccer. You know, I think about moving to Tennessee and the first school that said, yes, you can go on our air was actually Tennessee State, uh, where I went and called basketball for them um, just to get my foot in the door after moving to Nashville. So I have a lot of people to thank and I can like list probably 10 schools that have allowed me to call sports and Nashville SC, I lucked out to getting their games and and so far it's it's working out really well. So you knew for a long time that that being a broadcaster was, was what you were meant to do. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, the professional sports career didn't work out. Even going back and this is not a story that's unique to me, but a lot of broadcasters will say this and I can as well. Like I grew up on Sega Genesis, (laughs) uh, which makes me sound old again, which I've done multiple times on this podcast. But (laughs) that's after the Atari, though. Yeah. (laughs) But I remember like FIFA 94. (laughs) And instead of actually playing the game, I would turn it to simulate. Uh, And there in the basement of my parents' farmhouse, I would simulate the games, which just means the computer is playing the computer. And I would do the play by play. Uh, of of the game. So my broadcasting career, I guess, started with with an audience of none in the basement of a a house in Virginia watching Sega Genesis soccer take place. And uh, who knows what that sounded like, but it's funny to think that I've been training for some of these moments for, geez, almost 30 years. This is a judgment-free zone, so it's okay that that you're in the basement calling these Sega games. I think that's incredible. Well, talk, talk about what it was like when you got the first big break. Like, was it an SEC school that was like, we want you to be, want you to call the, call the game for us? I would, what's my first big break? Um, it's funny when you're a, a, a broadcaster, it never feels like a, a big break because you're always, you just get this chance and then you're so focused on not screwing up that <laughs> uh, it's not like I've made it. It's, oh no, I need to, you know, stay. Don't mess um, this up. Yeah, I mean, you can always just point to some lucky spots where somebody gave you a chance, and then you you prove your way. And I think that with Nashville SC, that's that's how it worked out. You know, as a broadcaster, and and a lot of times with anyone uh, for any profession, it it matters of are you at the right place at the right time. Uh, and my wife uh, moved to Nashville, and I moved with her uh, before the team had even announced its USL franchise. Um, so I was in Nashville having called games for Virginia for gosh, almost eight years and having broadcast soccer and, um, done a a really large amount of soccer broadcast in Virginia. And here I moved to Nashville and there's no soccer team. 
which means there's no other soccer broadcasters. Um, so I lucked out in that sense that when the team started, uh, there weren't many uh, people that they could hire to call the games. So uh, in a way, they were kind of stuck with me. Uh, I reached out and said, hey, I've, I've got this experience at the college level. I called Division One soccer. And um, thankfully, that got me uh, a foot in the door with the U23 team, um, which was the team that played the year before Nashville SC entered USL. And uh, I was lucky enough to transition from from that to the USL gig the next year. And um, so far, so good. They haven't They haven't gotten rid of me yet. So how fun has that been going through like the first Tennessee park when it went there calling games to you calling uh, Walker Zimmerman's first goal at Nissan as a, as an MLS team. Oh, it's so cool. Um, as a broadcaster, what's the point of doing it? If you're not emotionally connected, um, you never want it to feel like a job and like Keen, you're in coaching, you know, it, you don't want to just show up and, and feel nothing after a game. <laughs> uh, you want to, feel the ups and downs uh, yeah. and with this club uh, and the broadcasting that I've done for it, um, I'm invested uh, and I'm okay saying that uh, there's a kind of a feeling in broadcasting a lot where guys will go on and say like, you know, I'm unbiased, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm completely neutral and, and I'm just not like that. You know? Yeah. Of course I want Nashville SC to win when I go broadcast <laughs> their games. I'm the home team broadcaster. Um, am I going to lose my mind when the other team scores an absolute wonder goal? Of course I am. You know, I respect great plays no matter who makes them and I'd never undersell it, but uh, to be able to um, be a home team broadcaster uh, in the local market is such a treat to go into these games with, um, you know, some privileged information usually because we get to talk to the coaches and we're ingrained in the club and we're, um, you know, part of, part of what the club produces. Uh, it's a wonderful experience. So to be able to also just see the growth of it uh, and to feel like maybe, just maybe, um, I've played a, a tiny little part in it um, and bringing that excitement is something really cool and something that I'll cherish. So, so do you get nervous, not for you, but for the team before some of the games? Like, I'm nervous for this game. Um, huh. I get nervous before games. I don't know if it's about the team. Uh, I, I think it's more just, am I going to do this called justice? And I get nervous every time I walk into the stadium. I, it's still exciting to me. I think if I ever walk into the stadium and see soccer lines and soccer goals out there and, and don't get this rush of butterflies, I think that's probably time where I should go do something else. Um, so if I get nervous, I don't think it's necessarily like I'm living and dying by the results of the game. Um, I think I'm just nervous because I care yeah, <laughs> and I want things to go well. And I'm just feeling so fortunate that, that there's soccer games to call. Like I, I did a Lipscomb game the other day, uh, maybe two months ago, because they were playing in the spring season. It's Lipscomb soccer. It's a very good program. There's maybe 50 fans there, and we're doing a YouTube stream, and there's maybe 50 fans watching. And like I'm nervous before that. I just love calling the games uh, and, and doing these broadcasts, and I feel giddy every time somebody allows me to to talk into a microphone on behalf of their team.
what's what was it like doing because you've called games for for belmont as well what's what's it like calling some of those uh some of the college games like yeah games? so belmont uh i've called just uh, a few games for them i've called uh, more for lipscomb uh, on the soccer scene and um, that was actually the first soccer assignment i had uh in nashville um, and that was before the the usl team for nashville even started um i i love the college game i think it's totally different in terms of style of play um, sometimes it can be uh, very grueling um, style of play. Sometimes it can be completely wide open and crazy. Like you can see some things in college soccer that are hard to find anywhere else uh, in a good way. Uh, but the simple joy of calling games, um, it doesn't matter what level it is. And um, I called a few Lipscomb games this year uh, with my, my Nashville C color analyst in West Bowling and, Man, there was like a 70-degree day. There's no press box there. They were slathering on sunscreen. And there's this gentle breeze. It's this beautiful pitch and this wonderful part of town. And we're just sitting there being like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, like we get to call this game, uh, which is wonderful already. But just being able to sit here and, and watch soccer in Nashville and for such an appealing team on, on a beautiful day. Uh, we're we're pretty lucky guys to be able to do what we do. Well, and then, you know, Coach Morrow's been around for so long. Like, what a great guy to get to know and and maybe share. I mean, did you get a chance you get a chance to kind of visit with the coaches a bit? Yeah, we talked to them before games and uh, we'll have a phone call at the beginning of the season and then before every single game, uh, I'll go down onto the field and and talk to Coach Morrow uh, or Kevin O'Brien if I'm doing the women's game. Uh, and it's such a family environment at Lipscomb. So I also call games with Taylor Washington, who uh, was the is still a Nashville SC player and has an interest in getting into broadcasting. And, and we've become friends, and I, I knew he wanted to get into broadcasting, so I got him into calling some of these games. And I just remember, like, this is how much of a family vibe Lipscomb is. Like, we called two games um, together in the spring, and we show up to the third, and there's this enormous box of Lipscomb gear, <laughs> like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of this pristine Puma gear with Lipscomb soccer all over it. Um, like two jackets for both of us, uh, a sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now, t-shirts, like all this stuff uh, that they just gave to us. And, and that's how Lipscomb operates. You know, they give back to the people that give to them. Um, and I'm so fortunate that, that they too allow me to call some of their games. Well, and, and speaking of giving back, I, I know you, you briefly mentioned Taylor, but talk about an opportunity or opportunities you have to maybe mentor people who want to get into broadcasting and, and how that what that looks like. Yeah, you pay it forward uh, for sure. You know, I've had so many people be so good to me um, for nothing. <laughs> As in, I've written emails to so many people when I was young saying, you know, can I intern for you? And I didn't have much to give them and they had so much to give me yet here they were saying yes. So uh, anytime somebody reaches out and says, Hey, can you listen to my tape or give me critique? I will. Um, and in fact, I love doing it. Uh, and we've had some wonderful interns. I mean, think about just some interns that I've had at Nashville SC. Um, our sideline reporter intern, our first year was a, a young woman named Paris Lawson. Um, who was wonderful. And we gave her feedback and she was just a star from the start. I mean, we didn't have to give her much. She's now on the Oklahoma Thunder NBA broadcast as like a 24 year old. 
Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we, we've just had so much good talent and um, in the end, it, it all comes around to, you know, <laughs> I think one day probably with all the talented interns we've had, I'll be asking a former intern for a job, not the other way around. Uh, but I mean, you're in coaching. Is there anything more rewarding than, you know, helping groom somebody get to where they want to go and then seeing them achieve it? It's the same way in broadcasting. Yeah, especially when it's within the same industry. I mean, I've had a couple of guests on my show who um, played for me in college and are now coaching college. And it's like it's so rewarding to see them like stay in the in the industry and in that profession and that having success like it's you know, it's really fun to see them do well. Yeah. I've always wondered what it's like for the coaches when that kid or young person that you mentored then turns around and beats you in coaching. So, so far, none of the interns have taken my job yet, but they're so good. They eventually will. Yeah. It's pretty early on, John. Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> they're just young. That's it. Give them 10 years. And, and I think some of the people we've had come through are going to be some stars. Well, and then talk about uh, kind of the excitement behind the, the new stadium uh, construction and what it's going to be like for you to call a game, you know, should you be lucky enough to um, at the new stadium? I mean, it's it's going to be a palace. I said that already. Um, we had a media tour, I think maybe a month or two ago, uh, and we stood in the stadium. Uh, it was gravel uh, where we stood, and it's where the field would be. And uh, Ian Eyre, the CEO of Nashville SC, said, you know, close your eyes. And where you're standing, imagine Hani Mukhtar curling in a free kick. Uh, and that kind of made it pretty real pretty fast. Uh, I think the stadium is going to be incredible. Every rendering I've seen, all the, all the fans are super excited about it. I haven't seen the broadcast booth uh, and the renderings for that. So uh, who knows what, what that'll be and if, if I'll be lucky enough to be calling the radio for, for those games. But nevertheless, uh, I think we're going to have you know, a spectacular venue uh, for a team so far that has proven to be a really, really competitive Major League Soccer team. It's the only undefeated uh, or one of the four unbeaten teams left in Major League Soccer after the games this weekend. So wonderful stadium, quality club, rowdy fans, because we know Tennessee has those, and a city that backs its sports teams. I think it's a perfect mixture. Yeah, you know, we've we kind of talked to I've talked on another episode about the just like the fan bases of some of these teams and how they're, you know, it's so fun to experience the atmosphere. Like if you're sitting in the cauldron, you know, at Sporting KC and what it's going to be like to sit in the back line, you know, when we get into our stadium and just, you know, you get goosebumps just thinking about what kind of an atmosphere we can create here in Nashville. Yeah, correction. They're not going to be sitting. <laughs> They're going to be standing. Uh, that's that's one of the great things about supporters is that they walk in and and they never sit. Uh, they have no reason to. Uh, they, they're they want to expand their lungs and support their team. And uh, I, I think back even to the games that we did in Nissan Stadium, and one of the the marquee games of the 2020 season or, or best wins of the 2020 season was Nashville SC's absolute demolition of Atlanta United scored in the first minute, dropped four goals on Atlanta, completely ran them off of the pitch and there were no fans. And it was so anticlimactic. It was so quiet in uh, such an empty feeling, almost walking out of that stadium knowing what it could have been. 
Uh, and now adding fans to Nissan Stadium uh, this year, and then also knowing that you know, next year the environment is going to be even more personalized with a, a brand new stadium, uh, it gives me chills thinking about it because the the sound of the supporters, even in the small amount that we have now uh, in, in these uh, first couple games because of capacity being so limited, they've been so loud. They're blowing away a lot of our, our audio and our goal calls just because they're so loud, even though it's, it's 12,000 of them. Just wait till we've got a soccer specific stadium with 30,000 seats and it's completely full. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be something special for sure. And it just seems like every year there's something new to get excited about. Um, just from, like you said, the, the, the meteoric rise that we've had in Nashville with, Hey, we're going to have a pro team to, Hey, we're going to the MLS. Hey, we're going to have this brand new, amazing stadium. Like it just, everything just keeps getting better. Yeah. It's like, when are we going to have an ordinary year? <laughs> you know, like this isn't normal. You don't go from uh, an NPSL fourth division team to MLS to being a like legitimate cup contender uh, with a new stadium in five years. Like that's just a crazy rise. Uh, and no one predicted that it would happen. And, and that's part of this club's DNA uh, that you know, every step of the way, it seems like Nashville has always been counted out as a soccer city. Even when you're going back to expansion, you know, you looked at those expansion lists four or five years ago when there were you know, two slots for expansion in MLS and writers would write, you know, 10 teams that are contenders for it. Nashville was like barely on the list in a lot of them. And here they are you know, way, way uh, above any expectations that people had for them. And as we kind of get into that era and, and, and should you be have the opportunity to be the caller, um, talk a little bit about what kind of homework you have to put in in preparation for your games. It's a lot. I mean, it's probably a lot like coaching uh, where you get a scouting report. You need to know the other team and what their tendencies are and stats and numbers and figures. And uh, it it truly is a full week experience um, just to get ready for what ends up being about a two hour radio broadcast. Uh, so I'd say our, our total prep between me um, and my color analyst, Wes Bowling, uh, we're looking at each probably 15 hours of prep for, for a two hour broadcast. Um, and all of the notes and nuggets and storylines that we prepare, uh, maybe we use 10 to 15% of them. Um, it's just how it is. Probably like your scouting reports when you were a college coach. You get these scouting reports and you've got a roster of 40 guys and then 20 of them play. And you're like, man, I wish I could have saved that Sunday afternoon <laughs> and not figured out what dominant foot this backup right winger has. Um, <laughs> so the other thing, too, is it's a lot of film. Um, just knowing who is who on the other team. And I said this in another interview. Um, I don't memorize numbers anymore. I used to do that quite frequently. Um, say, you know, oh, number seven has the ball for this team. That's, you know, Alan Polito of Sporting Kansas City. I don't know the numbers. I really don't because I watch so much film that I can identify the player by how they look. Um, and that's the important part in radio is when somebody gets the ball, um, your brain just needs to tell you who that is. You don't need to be like, what's his number? Is he number five? Is he number nine? Okay, he's number nine. This is who number nine is. Um, you just need to know just, just subconscious 
who that player is so that you can say their name and, and then describe what they're doing. Um, and the, the only way to, to do that is by just watching film um, and training your, your eye and brain for that. Um, and then the other thing that, that I do to prepare uh, is uh, actual vocal work. I hired a, a vocal instructor a couple years ago. Uh, Rebo Otto, who's uh, a good friend now, and uh, we you know, went over how to prepare your voice for a broadcast, um, how to hit the high notes. She had me do these really silly vocal routines where you're you're doing calls several octaves above what you would do when you're excited in a game, so that that part of your registry is is easier to access when you actually need to. Um, and then as games uh, approach, about three hours before, I'll do a really silly vocal routine that my wife makes fun of me uh, for all the time. And um, it's about 30 minutes of preparing my voice so that hopefully I'm not hoarse if, if a really big moment comes because huge moments come maybe once a year, maybe once every two years, maybe twice in a week. You never know, um, but you certainly you can't predict when they're going to come and you definitely want to deliver when they do. Well, and then, like you said, you, you don't want to mess someone's name up either, right? I mean, you got to at least know how to read their names. Yeah, and that's that's an adventure. You know, it's I watch NFL games, and it's like Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he hands it off to, you know, Mike Jones. And then you go to an MLS roster, and you're like, whoa, these are some names. Um, or a college roster. Um, for that matter. So in, uh, in pretty much any broadcasting, um, you get rosters well beforehand um, and they have pronunciation guides on them. And you need to figure out how to say every player's name. Um, and you, you can't fumble on it uh, during the match. So that's another thing too. Um, you got to practice. If it's a really hard pronunciation, you need to say it hundreds of times to yourself when no one's listening just so that it rolls off of your tongue uh, when it does. And then the other thing, too, that's really funny about the pronunciations is they're sometimes debatable. <laughs> so like Yonder Cadiz for Nashville SC, we are still having debates uh, as a, a broadcast team, whether it's Yonder or Yonder. And we actually had him record him saying it and what his name is pronounced. Um, and we still can't figure it out. Uh, so it's just the way it is sometimes. And, and some people really dive into to the foreign accents when giving them. Uh, I'm not a, a broadcaster that particularly does that. Uh, I give it my best shot and do it most authentic to, to the recording or the pronunciation guide that we have. Um, but in the end, um, it's impossible to, to deliver it in the exact person's you know, native accent. But you want to be as close as possible. Yes. Let, let's. Uh, is there any specific moments that you've called that you would say, if you were sitting down to go over like the biggest sports, whether that was when you were calling in the USL or SEC or ACC, or there's certain moments that stick out to you as some of your best memories of of moments that you've called in a game. Moments are just kind of when you're kind sitting when you're down and you're in disbelief. So I've got two that really come to mind um the first one would be i grew up outside of charlottesville and like these are way back in the radio days where if a game was uh on tv it was pretty rare 
um, for college sports. Like you might have a, it's crazy to think you might have a football schedule that has 12 games and maybe four of them were on TV. Um, and back in my day, the radio would go out at night. <laughs> so if the game started at six and it got dark at eight, you didn't know what the final score was until, until the paper came out the next day. Um, but I grew up listening to Virginia uh, football and basketball on radio and particularly really enjoyed basketball um, and listened to Virginia basketball, went to the University of Virginia. And um, when I was, I think, 31, which was three years ago, um, I was actually invited by the University of Virginia to call seven basketball games as a fill-in. Um, and I just remember going to the John Paul Jones Arena um, and sitting courtside for that game thinking like, man, I've been wanting to do this since I was like four years old. Um, and all the work that's gone into it, 27 years of growing up um, to be sitting in this seat, it was a, a really, really neat moment. Um, and my parents were there and they got to listen and you know, they, they grew up or not grew up, but they, they raised me listening to these games and to, to have their son doing it was a really special family moment. Um, and then the other side is um, the Nashville C inaugural match. Like I've got a lot of great moments and awesome goals to call. And uh, I've been so fortunate in that sense. But the Nashville C inaugural match where there's 59,000 fans. You know, I came up broadcasting soccer when the club was in the amateur divisions. And now they're in this MLS game. And it just everything went so well that game. I know they didn't win it, but they get this goal. It comes from a guy that's, you know, become one of the faces of the club there's so many fans there the call went okay like i didn't i didn't totally blow it which is good that was like the only goal um it was like don't don't blow this call like you can't ever get this back and you'll never live it down uh, so everything just went right that day and and that's such a special memory for me i don't know were you there yeah i was there yeah i mean everyone that you talk to as well feels the same way like nobody went and had a bad experience that was that was a pretty cool lifetime experience for, for all 59,000 that went there. And we're all looking forward to uh, the new ones we're going to continue to make, uh, you know, as they open up the capacity for Nissan. I mean, I, I went to the, the opener again this year, um, and I thought they did a tremendous job in the way that they kept the spacing and they kind of they made it feel like you were safe. And But I'm looking forward to, to seeing it, a packed house again for sure. Oh, man, can't wait. I mean – even 12,000 fans has sounded so loud. It did. Just wait till it's more. That's such yeah. a cool thought to have. And then just wait until it's in that closed soccer specific stadium where the noise is just going to be bouncing off of each other. Oh, perfect. Can't wait. <laughs> I mean, it's, I get, you, we're recording this too late, man. You're getting me fired up. I'm supposed to be going to bed soon. <laughs> well, listen, I, I appreciate you taking the, the time to come on and sharing your story. It's been, it's been really fun visiting with you. Yeah, Keen, anytime you, uh, you want to come up to Nashville and, and check out the broadcast booth, once we're allowed to have guests, come on up, man. We'll, uh, we'll hook you up and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that you got to, a good place to watch the game. And we've been speaking with John Freeman, soccer and sport broadcaster in the MLS, SEC, ACC, and USL. Thanks for listening to Down the Tunnel. I'm Keen Barclay. Join us again next time as we talk all things soccer. Send your comments and questions to downthetunnel at gmail.com. <laughs>